Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. During my racing years and even now, I take my health and nutrition pretty seriously. It was so difficult though to stick to some sort of routine and remember to take all those necessary supplements. Then I found Athletic Greens. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So what is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I've never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. So this is just the perfect all-in-one solution for me. I actually look forward to taking it. I do it first thing in the morning. I feel more alert and focused and now I'm taking care of my body and health. I feel energized to get my day going. So check this out. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, none of that nasty chemicals or artificial anything, all while still tasting good. Let's be honest, we all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality recovery, mental clarity and alertness. Now I don't care what you do, I think we all can agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by so many professional athletes and health experts. To make trying it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one year supply of immune supporting and vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The links will be in the show notes as well. Thanks to our episode sponsor, ODI. Now I've been on these and only these grips for well over 20 years. How cool is that? I clearly remember we couldn't even get them in South Africa back in the day when I was a junior. The minute I got my hands on a pair of these lock-on grips, I never looked back. They are the original lock-on. They have an incredible range of options out there. But I want to tell you a little bit about something new they're offering. Drawing on over 40 years of experience of producing performance-driven grips and feedback from their extensive network of top riders across the globe, the Reflex Grip have been engineered to reduce impacts and vibration being passed onto the rider's hands to allow you to ride more with less pain and fatigue. Reflex grips are the latest innovation in impact dampening to keep you riding longer and farther as they've been specifically engineered to reduce vibration, like having suspension for your hands without compromising control. They use their propriety grip compound with its superior impact damping properties and couple this with responsive ribbed padding that actively flexes under your hands to reduce impacts and torsional forces. Now those are some fancy words, but let me tell you, this just really is going to help you with less fatigue, less pain, you're gonna be able to ride longer. So what's not to like about that? Not to mention their version 2.1 lock-on grip system gives you the most reliable, slip-free grip performance available. Hey, if you wanna learn more, head over to odigrips.com or pop into your nearest retailer. Hello world, how's it going? 
That is a little bit of South African slang, and I've got my fellow colleague here, South African, none other than Miles Kelsey. This is World of MTB. It's catching on a bit. We've got lots of questions. It's uh, just a series we do in this Moving the Needle podcast. I'm Andrew Nedling. Thanks to all you guys. This show is kind of because you guys are supporting so well, leaving those reviews, sending in those questions. We're trying to just like pass on the knowledge, have a good time, maybe bring you into our world of MTB. Um, and uh, let's let's get going, Miles. Um, how on earth are you doing? We've had a pretty good summer. We're moving into winter, but that is also positive because racing is kicking off. European summer is upon us. Um, so it's kind of an exciting time, even though our riding is getting a little bit duller, less daylight hours. Needles, hello, my brew, and uh, hello to all the listeners. Um, great to be here. I'm pumped. As always, pumped to be on your show. It's a great show. You're doing great things. Um, and yes, it's very chilly here in the Southern Hemisphere and in, in, in Cape Town today. It's very, very chilly. But um, I'm looking forward to uh, my trip to Morzine, which is coming up next month. So I've only got four more weeks of the chilly weather, and then I'm, I'm headed to ride the steep stuff. True. You, uh, well, I think we've... Given your age, you're in, <clears throat> excuse me, in your 50s and living the dream and uh, booked another trip to Morsi to work remotely, shred the downhill bike. I mean, I think that's inspiration. I had a funny story from Darkfest. I seem to be the old guy with gray hairs inspiring some other guys that didn't really know the sport, but they're like, wow, you're an old dude. I don't know if I told you that story. So I think no, we've got to embrace... Me. Tell me, what happened? I mean, so, I know. You, I mean, I was, I was there at Darkfest and I saw you yeah. do this. Do so this, this is just, I think, to embrace that. I mean, the demographic of riding is getting wider. I don't know if we spoke about it or it's come up on yeah. the podcast, which is great. Very cool. So these guys were down um, to watch Darkfest, the public day. Not a lot of riding, ironically. It's kind of always like that. Just somehow that's where the weather's not playing along. And these guys didn't know a lot about the sport, but they were super excited. They got into it more because of lockdown. I think they're in their 50s. And um, we met after the riding. And he said, do you mind if I share something with you? I said, I'm, I'm an open book. Go for it. And he said he brought his friend over. He said, hey, this is the guy. I'm like, hey, how's it? Nice to meet you. Thinking they maybe knew about Downhill or Greg Menard or something, which it didn't seem like they did. I said, dude, this is the guy. So... Sorry to be rude, but when you took your helmet off and we saw you had a few gray hairs, we were like, no way, this old guy can do this shit. We, you know, we, we can still do this mountain biking stuff. Awesome. That's so cool. Uh, he definitely used some more uh, creative language, which is funny. But uh, <laughs> so and dude, you, can't, you, you can't hide you, your age. And I think I, Greg Manon okay, is the same. Hold on. You've, you've been throwing my age all over this podcast for a few, <laughs> a few episodes now. So just, just like, where are you? Are you like 40? Where? I'm 39. I'm getting to the age where you start forgetting. That's a thing, right? Or like okay. purposely forgetting. Okay. 39 in August. Okay. okay. So I'm so catching Greg. Greg is, is 41. Greg 41 in, 41 in November, whenever his birthday is. 41 and married. Yeah. So he's racing. Yeah, he's finally married as well, which is, which is cool. Uh, so he's becoming an adult slowly but surely. Okay, we're back to your story. So the, these two guys, they 
Have you followed up use... with them? Have they, have they bought mountain no. bikes? Have you converted yeah, them? No, yeah, no, they're from Joburg and uh, we're talk- I was like, you guys need to bring your bikes down here. They're like, yeah, we should. We didn't really know there's so much riding down here. And um, I think it's just super cool. Lockdown, getting more people into biking, e-bikes. So the demographic is definitely widening, isn't it? People can ride for longer. There's some guys from the hangar, some clients. He's in his 80s on an e-bike. I mean, how cool is that? Yeah, yeah. That's, that's insane. That's, that's so cool. So, yeah, I mean, I was, uh, since we last chatted, I've been, um, well, I was at the opening of your second store, the Hangar Scott Experience Center in Lawrenceford, and rode those trails. There's a video up on my channel about that. Uh, it's a great store. And also nice to ride Lawrenceford Wine Estate. I've never ridden there. So those are some new trails that I rode, which are, so Lawrenceford's in Somerset West, which is, uh, what's it, 40 minutes, 30 minutes out of Cape Town. And uh, a massive basin, the Cape Epic goes through there. There's this big valley and this whole, like, looks over this big uh, big coastal area of, of South Africa, of Cape Town, of Western Cape. And the trails were absolutely unbelievable. I, I, I heard so much about Lawrenceford, but never managed to get out there and was stoked to ride it and see that. Uh, lived up to my expectations and uh yeah your store's great and yes that's where stan 81 year old yes, stan was riding stan. on an e-bike next to me i'm like like casual chatting and i'm like yo 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 how are you doing and um what are you mates in your like late 50s and he's like no i'm 81 he's <laughs> I, I i couldn't believe it I, I anyway i ended up spending like an hour chatting to the guy what an inspiration and yeah there he is Doing 40Ks with us, 1,000 meters elevation uh, on an e-bike, living his best life at 81. So the demographic uh, is widening. I mean, no, it is. We must actually maybe get Darren from Pile Trails on just to talk about this. this South Africa is booming. It, it it's, it's probably sounds so biased when everyone listening to hear it from us as South Africans, but all the foreigners that come, the teams that come train here, the Cape Epic. There's a question about Cape Epic, which is super cool, so we can branch a little bit into XC. But did you watch some of the XC? I uh, I tuned in to, you know, the new broadcast of our XC. It's still bike racing. Yeah, you see the subtle changes on the course markings and all those things that they're trying to improve, which is great. But um, as a whole, we were just spoiled with epic racing, right? If the, if the racing's good, doesn't matter who's handling the organization if you can get good racing and they had that um it's pretty damn cool look i watched uh i mean i'm just a i'm just a nut i just love bike racing so i watch as much as i can all the genres and um yeah i watched the full broadcast uh from the short track i watched some of the under 23 and the elites um yeah like great racing great track tricky um i think if you are um, anyone but Tom Pitcock and the elite category, you're you're a little bit angry. Tom Pitcock just like dives in, smashes everyone, and then goes back on onto uh, one of the grand tours or something. So um, yeah, I, I think if I was lining up uh, in a field and Tom Pitcock just arrived and just smashed everyone, I think, and I was part of that field, I think I'd be angry. So um, incredible ride by him, what an athlete. And uh, yeah, the women's racing also full on, super exciting. Some technical, some technicals that uh, impacted on the results. Um, and but yeah, great course. Look, like great to see like so many spectators at the racing as well. Like six 
and spectators were like six deep on some sections of the track and uh yeah the broadcast was cool i thought i thought actually everything everything actually panned out it's great so um mm. which bodes well for the, the downhill which is like what three weeks away three and a half weeks away yeah, not long now. I mean, I just think there's such a big lesson. Yes, Pitcock's an incredible human, incredible bike rider. Uh, love to get him know, get to know him more and chat to him. But I think we can all learn patience from that man. Uh, oh, let's get Tom on just the like show. he controls. He like he just realizes I'll control what I can control, and he has a lot of patience and race strategy to get the last minute call up to short track. He said he did a three and a half hour ride in the morning. Some people would have been. Maybe let that hurt them. Oh, you know, how am I going to do well in short track if I didn't know and I did this long training ride? Yes, we know he's fit and he can handle certain things, but mentally he just got on with it and was patient and didn't try get to the front too early, even though it's a short track. He just waited and he waited. And then he was the guy sort of third as the downhill started. And he was the one that was realized like, if I get to the front by the time this downhill's finished, there's no ways they're going to out sprint me. So he, he played the short track perfect and then cross country as well. Like he had this sort of, obviously he's confident and his interviews are the, he's so blunt and cocky. It's <laughs> hilarious. Um, even the fiance was like, wow, he's, and I was like, he's blunt, you know, he's the English yeah. blunt humor and cocky and she enjoyed it as well. So, oh, we get, we spoiled that he comes in. It's obviously will be annoying for the other races. I mean, he's technically not full-time on biker. But he's able to deliver. But he knows how to ride a bike. He's obviously got race experience and mountain biking and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, that XCC, I see you picked it up as well, but last lap, top of the last climb, there seemed to be like 15, 10 meters where everyone sort of cruised in and then rode the jumps before the last two turns and then the sprint to the line. But he knew in those 15 meters, like two, three hard pedal strokes, he's going to build up the momentum and no one's going to be able to pedal or catch him through the jumps, through the right-hander, and then in, then there's just two straightaways. So his tactic was, like, smart. Like, yeah, it was really smart. The same in cross-country. Obviously, he had the legs, and then um, I, I just watched, and I was like, in cross-country, if you can get to the last downhill at the front, you're going to recover on the downhill, and you might be able to put even if two or three bike lengths are going to help you you know, into that last sprint. And there's obviously a short last sprint. And that's what he did. He just yeah. attacked on the second last climb and, and hoped that he could hold it off and get into that last downhill. And race was over. It was really cool. And, you know, unlucky for Evie Richards. I mean, obviously riding a great race. I didn't see all of it. But, I mean, sh I don't know. Were those wheels ready when she got there? That seemed like a longer... Oh, and then she had an issue with the chain as well, which you can't blame the mechanic. These things can happen as she gets off. And she had that chain problem. I don't know. It seemed like the wheel change took longer than you would have hoped for. But I guess in that moment, you just time just drags on, right? It just does take time to swap a wheel. Yeah, you know, maybe they went super soft pressures because of uh, traction on the climbs. You know, that's always the priority. And there was some tricky, rocky stuff. So maybe they went down on pressures and that's what caused the flat. So um, I don't know. I'm just guessing. I'm sitting here tens of thousand kilometers away. So it's unfortunate. But, yeah, um, exactly. I'm I'm just watching yeah. from a couch, so I'm yeah. definitely not insinuating anything towards any sort of preparation on the team. I think I guess being you're a just mechanic, hoping you were just hoping it would happen quicker. Being a mechanic sitting there and then seeing your rider who's in the lead come in with a flat, like 
it must be so stressful. The cameras are on you. You've got to get it right. Uh, it's a real wheel. Uh, I, I think, uh, uh, yeah, tough, tough job. Tough job to get it right under pressure like that for the mechanic. No, but shout out to Alan Hathley. I mean, he went down in the XCC on the last lap, so he didn't get a result there. He was on the bubble of the top 10 before he went down. And then um, actually in on the XCO, he actually had a good race because I think he started from the third or fourth row, but actually moved his way all the way through to 10th, which kind of flew under the radar for most media. And... Uh, uh, I think he's. I think that shows he's actually got good legs. And uh, knowing Alan, he'll probably, you know, that um, maybe lackluster result will uh, make him really hungry for the next round in Lenzerheide. So I'm pretty, pretty keen to to see how he goes in Lenzerheide. And then also South African wise, we had Candice Lil placing 25th, I think, in the XCO. So also great through the pack. I think she was started. 40th or 50th on the grid and rode through the pack. So South Africans are, are getting up there. Yeah, I think that's an awesome segue because uh, I know some of the questions are to do with that. So why don't we jump into some of these questions, Miles? I've got one. And I think we can uh, blanket it, not just South Africa, but maybe a, a third world country or a country that's far away from Europe. For the podcast, how to go from a South African favorite but i think he means a youngster that's doing well to world cup contender for for, for re on instagram miles you've probably seen him at the races because i looked up the instagram he's got second at african champs this is the youngster doing enduro and downhill and also thanks for reaching out to the podcast he also asked where can i watch it well it's not quite on youtube yet we do clips um if there's anyone out there that wants to partner up and do some youtube content or my editing hit me up if you're serious about it um, look, we've just been speaking about these South Africans that are out there on the world stage. You've got Greg Menard. How did they get there, right? So what does a South African do? Unfortunately, you need the experience. But just because you're from a country that doesn't have all the world-class tracks, just because um, it's further to, doesn't mean you can't make it. You know, the, the people have gone before you, so they can give you the confidence. And I say, be smart with your finances, um, it's not easy, but you need to get international experience and you need to be hungry to race as much as humanly possible. The more you race, the more you're going to learn. Um, and, and I think getting overseas early, I was lucky. My road was showing potential at home, winning races, beating elites, and I'm not tooting my horn. I think there must be something to show like, hey, there is potential here. Are you able to beat some some guys a little older than you? Are you keeping up with the elites when you get late in your junior ranks? Um, what do you need to get better? Uh, are your times fast enough, but you don't have international experience? Cool. Then we've got to make a plan to get you overseas. Try to do smaller races. You don't have to go straight to World Cups. You need to get used to the tracks. You need to get used to all sort of things around there. So it is possible. It, it might just take you a little bit longer because you can't take an easy jet and go to Morzine and go to all these races. What do you say, Miles? I completely agree. Yeah, get um, get into France, get into Europe and go and ride as many tracks as possible. And you know, don't uh, jump in on a on a World Cup level. Um, get, get, some, get some of the French Cup races or some of the other races under your belt first and get a taste for it over there. No doubt after your first 
as a South African, after your first trip to Europe, you will come back and realize what you need to work on, whether it's high speed stuff, whether it's arm strength, grip strength, um, whether it's uh, dealing with changing conditions on the track because the fields are so much bigger, the tracks get eaten up so much. So I think the priority is just get overseas without any expectations, try and spend June, uh, you know, a two, three week period there and just take it all in. Uh, even if it isn't a race, just go and ride some of the big stuff and just um, feel what it's like. Um, but yeah, it's, it's not impossible at all. In South Africa, we've got uh, 365 days a year where we can ride mostly. Um, so there's, we, we do, there are some advantages of uh, being a South African, basically. So um, yeah, definitely. get over there. And, and there's people that ride pretty small hills in England and they learn to go quick. They learn speed. Yes, they get to go to Morzine like a Brendan and they learn longer tracks, but their bike skills were built at home. Yeah. So you can't fake bike skills. You can't fake touch on the bike from being able to dirt jump, being able, yes, you can get fit, but bike time, speed, working on little sections. I, even when I was in elite ranks racing, the coach would give drills. We'd do 40 second sections where it's working yeah. on speed or whether it was chainless runs. So, yeah, I think, that, you know, where there's a will, there's a way. Um, if you need to do fundraising, uh, I think people, if they see potential, will support things like Miles said. If there's a way to go over early, get some riding in, or if you get selected for world champs from any of these countries. We've heard stories from Marcelo Gutierrez from Colombia. They were fish out of water. Everyone is fish out of water the first time. But maybe there's a smaller race before the world champs. It doesn't cost as much to also do. I was lucky. We went to a race in Switzerland, then the world champs, then a world cup final. So three-week period. My poor father probably had to remortgage the house a little bit. Well, he did. But I know he did. <laughs> it, it really helped because we kind of were like, okay, I'm this far from qualifying or I do qualify. You know, you want to know if it's a realistic chance to to go and go and race. But he is young. Um, I think it's awesome mm. that anyone yeah, listens to kid. the podcast. He's a good kid. Yeah. I know I, I, he was, I raced with him three weeks ago in Yonkazuk. He's a good kid. And that's the right question. It comes up all the time. It wasn't, how do I get sponsors? It said, how do I become a World Cup contender from being South African? How does that happen? How does that work? Cool. Mm. Hey, reach out to both of us. Uh, we'll always seek try to give some guidance. Seek a free seek progression, not immediate perfection when you ride. So just keep every time you ride and it, like week on week, month on month, seek to progress your skills. Don't try and become immediately another great winner, another Andrew Netlin. Like chip away at it. Yeah, you're helping me segue, Miles. I'll do another one here. There's some pretty awesome questions. Hey, Andrew, a couple of interesting questions, I hope, for Moving the Needle. Keep up the good work. It's an awesome podcast. Thanks, man. Okay, would SA ever produce another great goat, Manar, or was it a glitch in the matrix? Well, again, these are sort of South African-based questions, but they're not. Greg Menard is a glitch in the matrix worldwide. You're not going to see it again. I hope you do. hope I'm wrong. I don't know if you will see someone race at that level into their 40s. In this day and age with the youngsters coming up, technology, the speed, more injuries. Um, great question. I don't know what to say to it. I, uh... He basically answered it for us. 
I think uh, I think it's highly unlikely to be honest. I think he's a catch. He's uh, normally like no disrespect to the other riders and the other greats that are around. Um, I just think like look at the the decades that he's been up there winning national championships, winning Norbers, winning World Cups, winning almost any kind of gravity race that there is out there that he puts his mind to. I to um, Keep the hunger is one thing to keep the body uh, in check through those through that time frame, and then to to just the raw pace to to be able to refine your skills from where downhill was 25 30 years ago, which was could be a bit of a pedal fest, um, and to where it is now, uh, like it's a different sport, and it's unlikely that someone's going to going to do that again I, I i i'd like to see it but i think it's i think it's a hard no yeah and uh on this it's kind of tough to see people follow in the footsteps as a south african i'm seeing i'm seeing the potential uh but with the junior world cups the question we just said guys are going to get over earlier they're going to figure out their schooling take some breaks get some world cup experience as a junior that's more of a challenge um loik bruni's talking about you know if you go too long, can you lose, lose some of your legacy? He says in a perfect world, just listening to some of this stuff, he might be out of the sport at 35. Like he already has a plan. If all goes well, hopefully he's going to move out of the sport at 35 or whatever the number is. So what we saw there is sometimes there is one per generation or one per sport. Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, Kelly Slater. Greg Menard is doing something equivalent or better just because we have a smaller sport. To do that at an age and to withstand the mental challenge of of hitting the ground, you know, when you get older and, you know, whether you're wanting to risk as much, uh, but he has yeah. that competitive drive. So it overrides the crashing part. It's, it's brilliant think, to see. I don't think he's doing it just for the feeling of being famous. And, and, and I just think he I, just loves the competitiveness or the what comes with competition. 100%. And I think also, if I can just jump in, Please. what adds to Greg's accolades is um, in the early part of his career, downhill wasn't as global a sport as what it is now. There was nowhere, there, there wasn't live broadcasting anywhere. Um, you'd read about a race in a print magazine two months after the fact. So perhaps. He's not as famous as he should have, as he would be if he was now growing up, say, in the Jackson Goldstone era. Like Jackson hasn't even raced an elite World Cup yet, but he's kind of on the same trajectory as Greg. Like, I don't know, like, you know, just as a junior, you're beating elites. And there's, for me, that's like, okay, like, as a, when you're still young, you're already beating elites. And matching their times, that's someone to keep an eye on. And Greg was in that space a long time ago, even before the media hype was there to hype him up. So, what a what a man, what a guy. Yeah, no, great questions as well. I don't know if we want to flip flop to one or two of yours, and then we'll come back. Let's go. Yes. Um, so, what is your take on belt drivetrains? And why is it not a thing in SA, or is it a thing? This one's for you. Oh, 
Great. No, we no. You have to answer that one first. You're reading from the same list as me, so uh, that's from great. Henry Henry Basil. Okay, yeah. he sent his questions to you too. Okay, cool. Oh, wicked. That's uh, awesome. Henry uh, drive trains. Um, yeah, it's tricky because there's a lot of pivots in a rear, in a full suspension bike. So drive trains work on hardtails. I mean, uh, belt drive oh. drive trains work on hardtails, but on a full suspension bike with all the pivots and things moving about, uh, I guess a little more tricky. Um, and also where do you, uh, you know, technically where do you put the gearing? Um, I think, that, what did he say? Is it, is it a thing? It's not a thing right now, but it could be a thing. So there you go, Henry. I, it's not a thing right now. Like it's not mainstream at all anyway, but, I think it could be in the future, in the distant future. What do you think, Needles? Yeah, I mean, we said ask us anything, so that's our fault. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's not where our expertise lies, but it's a challenging question. I think you've answered a little bit. There's pros and cons to both systems. So that where do you, as I understand that, where do you put the gears? You put them in the hub, or you putting them where? Um, and then with that comes other things but i agree that like just because we have a chain on bike doesn't mean it's the best thing forever right um yeah it, it, it works it has its place it's interesting you know when the chain was designed and it works on motorbikes and bicycles but if it didn't exist and we force someone to redesign the bike what are they doing are they going to use belt and it would have been better um yeah it's not quite a thing no one's kind of testing it because then you've got to go where we're putting the gears and then you've got to trust the internal hub um, that some of the bikes use. I think Nikolai, is it, was it a Nikolai Dino bike? Yeah. Is that the correct word? They had yeah. belt driven. Um, so yeah, it depends on the pivot and then obviously where the rear axle's going. And then like you say, we use a chain and you got the derailleur that helps with the stretch. So yeah, that's, that's a question for someone with a little bit more uh, skill set. I, I have I have ridden a, a belt drive hotel and it's incredibly quiet. It's it's kind of weird, mm. uh, but that was you know in a single speed setup. So um, I don't know. I, I, we'll see. I, I don't expect anything soon at all. But uh, it would be interesting to see if someone can get it right for a you know full suspension big travel bike with gears. Yeah, fair enough. He's got some awesome questions. Um, do you think there will ever be a full-on roadie stepping into the downhill scene or vice versa, top pitcock and a full-face helmet, Bernard Kern, full lycra? Well, this is going to lead into another question after, but we have to answer that one full first. I can't see a full roadie. Like, but Tim uh, Pitcock has, from what I've understood, done British mountain bike races before. Yeah, it's it's not a guy that's is a world famous roadie from only riding road and then coming to mountain. I mean, you see him on the downhills, carries yeah. very good speed. Dude, if he can manage that course in those conditions, guy can ride a bike. Uh, can he make it in downhill? Uh, I don't. I mean, at this stage, I don't think so because what experience do you have? How long are you going to take to get the experience that? Loic Bruni has now, or, or like you say, Jackson, the juniors, Jackson Goldstone, he's been riding downhill since he could walk. Um, and no, to have a downhill go over, what's he, okay, well then maybe what's easier? So I think it's easier for 
an endurance athlete, so whether it's road or XC, to move to, well, no, actually, I don't know. No, I was going to say the other way. That's a great question. I was going to say the other way. I'm not belittling cross-country and saying downhill's way more difficult, but I think I would rather have an athlete with a crazy amount of skill on a bike, talent, touch, whatever you want to call it, and then mold his training. Because to get a guy, I know you only on downhill, you only need to get a few seconds here or there, but that's very difficult to fix. Yeah, I think, you know, if they're at that level... Like if they're 15 seconds behind, to get them 15 seconds on a two, three-minute track, that's very hard. But if you get a guy to work his butt off for the correct training and diet, can he improve his physical side enough to qualify for an XE World Cup? Okay, Henry, Basil, here's my my official answer. Here's my official reply. (laughs) I think... There's a handful of riders that could do it. Um, so if, like, there's a very small percentage of riders who could flip-flop from the endurance side through and then vice versa. Um, I think Tom Pitcock could. I think Alan Hathley could. Uh, I think Nino could have a few years ago. No disrespect, Nino. He's still a weapon. But I think there are a few, I think there's a few riders that are naturally gifted and on two wheels and probably grew up riding more than one discipline. But there is probably less than ten in the in the world right now who, within a year, could uh, take their careers into a different path and maybe not win, but be inside the top 10% of the field on a race weekend. That's my official answer. We need someone to come and do it because it's so hard to speculate. But I agree, like riding with these pro XE riders, it's incredible the speed they go on those bikes. Yeah. So if they put their mind to it, um, there are a few that stand out that could maybe figure it out. Um, That leads to the next question. He's kind of helped us segue, so good job on that. Who would you reckon is the best MTB rider of all time in all formats of the sport? So it's XEO, Enduro, Downhill, Freestyle, Trials, etc. and why? So this one's come up a lot. Remember with Sven, I don't know, remember him talking about Kate Edwards being one of these new naturally gifted riders that can do trick slopes style dark fest, top 10 at a World Cup, right? But if you're including Enduro and you're including XC, then the, the guy that sparks my interest is actually, annoyingly, the GOAT. Because there are, and I'm, and I'm probably going to forget, I'll get to it. He's done Cape Epics. He's super fit. He can transition to Enduro. He can do slalom. Um, he's done short track XC when global back in the day, like, I don't know if it was a bet or they forced him, right? So if Greg was paid to get proper fitness in, could he then do it? Could he then transition? I'm not saying he's the only person. This the is best the, all-round mountain this is biker. The bro, this is the official Bromance co- uh, podcast. The yeah, Bromance for the Brew podcast. But it is, it, well, it's actually, now that you said that, it definitely, I think Greg could be the only one who could flip-flop. And the, yeah, yeah, I can't believe I'm saying that Dickhead can do a backflip. He can 360. <laughs> 
<laughs> so then you say he can do some tricks, but like who are we forgetting? Because a number Richie of the top Rude. Ten. What about Richie, Richie Rude? Richie Rude, incredible bike handler. Jared Graves. Jared Graves. Went to BMX, Jared Graves. Went to BMX, boom. Can do down. Lopes. Lopes back Lopes in the day. Lopes back in the day. Like whoever can like put their mind to these things. Yeah. Yeah, Lopes back in the day. I mean, I'm sure we're forgetting a million of them, right? But the question is, who would you reckon he went is to the, the short best? Track. Yeah, but the question yeah. is, who would you reckon is the best of all time in all formats? Yeah, it's too subjective. So how do you okay. then quantify it? Okay. All right. Yeah, like how do you quantify it? So someone like someone has enduro downhill results, but they don't have enduro. So you got to guess. I mean, downhill enduro, but they don't have XE. And then we speak about these XE guys. They're like, well, give us a year or two. We could do downhill. <laughs> it's like, it's impossible. Yeah, I guess also if you're a top endurance rider on a team earning money, you kind of wouldn't want to step away from that for a year or two and try another discipline because you, unless you're going to road, um, because you kind of, you, you're in it. So it's, yeah, it's it's uh, not something that many athletes would consider doing. Yeah. So that's an open-ended question. Let's hear from it. Let's ping us. Or maybe uh, who is the best MTB rider of all time using those disciplines? Because Sven wants to put this poll up there as well. And Henry stumped us. I mean, you, it's just so subjective. You it's got to be Greg it. because Greg's, got, Greg's done Cape Epic. He has obviously done won everything on downhill he's also done a few enduros and he's like you said can backflip like has backflips so has done some of the red ball events in the early years um it's got to be greg right now yeah i guess so it's not that it just sounds like a bromance podcast but i guess he's top of mind because we spoke we're forgetting a lot of incredible i mean we're not taking away from anyone we've forgotten one of the greatest mountain, but back in the day it was Tomac, you know, because only yeah. XC and Down existed. So it was Tomac. If some people just Google John Tomac, he's one of the most incredible riders that could do it all. Um, the Lopes as well, like, and Graves is probably, Graves might be ahead of that list because he was able to transcend and go to BMX, top enduro. He's done downhill, he's got world championship medals, four cross as well. Maybe Jared Graves is a fair answer to that. Yeah. Oh, and he wins like Australian national champs XC. He yeah. wins road crits. It's probably yeah. got to be Graves. Got it. Yeah. Actually, I stand corrected. Yeah. I'll go with Graves. Sorry, yeah, Graves. You have it. <laughs> I'll buy you a beer. Uh, yeah. Uh, you're on the same one. Perhaps do a rundown on the recent Cape Epic. I know you're more gravity focused. Well, thank you. We are kind of, but seeing as Matt is a South African one again and it's Cape Epic Packs, give some thoughts. So let's give some general thoughts. Miles, you covered it a lot more than me. I yeah, was there nice. supporting and checking out the Scott team. They used our new shop to get out of the rain, which was really nice to see. Uh, yeah, incredible what those athletes are able to do over those seven, eight days or whatever it is. Um, I think they deserve all the respect in the world. I uh, spent a few days out there, um, Henry. Um, so a rundown on the recent Cape Epic. Well, I think if you are 
I think the real champions of the Cape Epic are the amateurs uh, who juggle a full-time job and are often family men. And those are the real champions because this is actually a race for professionals. It's incredibly hard. It's incredibly tough. The organizers don't make it any easier if the weather turns for the worse and the, the, the track gets mudded out um, and, you know, temperatures drop and stuff or wind picks up. So like this year we had gale force winds um, on day one. Um, so not the opening prologue on the official day one, uh, stage one. And there was, there was like a crazy, like a deluge later in the week on three of the days. Um, and riders were having mechanicals and there were, there were major injuries and the jerseys were changing hands often. Um, it's, it was a drama-filled Cape Epic, probably more so than in any other years. I mean, Nina was in yellow. I mean, um, Specialized started in yellow, then Nina was in yellow, then Speed Company, and it just flip-flopped quite a bit. It was very exciting right up until the last stage. On the, on the morning of the last stage, no one really knew who was going to win, and that doesn't happen often at the Cape Epic. So, um, but it's, you know, the... the the pros are one thing and you know this race is designed for pros it's it's i think the real champions are the bottom 80 percent of the field which are mostly privateers privately funded people who are juggling jobs juggling careers family time and so on and for them to compete on the same track under the same conditions um you guys are truly the champions so i think it's a it's a really hard event. It's, it's I love riding too much to ever want to do the Cape Epic. Unfortunately, it's. <laughs> Someone asked much. me, "Are you ever going to do the Cape Epic?" Um, I said, "Well, I don't always want to sit on my seat for eight hours a day, so it's going to be a hard no at this stage." Um, <laughs> but I understand the allure. I understand the challenge. It's a huge mental challenge. I respect everyone that's done it and will do it from now on. It's. It's grueling, like Miles said, um, and it's really impressive to have a horse in the race, someone like Matt Beers. That's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah, we're biased to that. But like you said, Nino, in the yellow final day, they had some luck. I mean, it, yeah, it had everything this year, and I must say, I don't always follow it as closely, but with our new store being at Lawrenceford, where one of the stages is, I was a little bit more invested, and, and it was cool to see. Yeah, we're super proud to be able to host it. Um, and it's gone worldwide now. They've got a Cape Epic International Series and these other types of spin-off events and the Swiss Epic. Um, that's really cool. Um, yeah, Moots is lastly. It gets a lot of people into mountain biking then maybe transition into trail bikes or e-bikes, et cetera, et cetera. 100%. The amount of people that I coach that have come from the Cape Epic and they've, you know, they tell me they've done three, four Cape Epics, but now they want to ride trail or they want to, they want to ride trail in an e-bike and uh, they just want to have fun. Knee pads, two, three hours out there. That's that's all they, they're keen on. There's you know, so many people are, are saying that right now. Um, but just back on moving around the pits inside the Cape Epic, the, the talk in the pits and in the race village, as they call it, is about who's the strongest rider out there. Many of the top riders we're whispering and just, you know, talking offline, saying how strong Matt Beers really is. And it's like, I think, shout out to Matt. You're a flipping legend, motocross weapon, accidentally discovered 
cycling and discover that you're a gifted rider. And, uh, you know, he's now won two Cape Epics. Um, and he's, he's just super chilled, super authentic, pr very natural guy, easy, easy, easy guy to talk to. And uh, he's respected amongst the pros as and known in the bunch as probably the strongest guy throughout the eight days. So, and he's, yeah, he's from Cape Town. So shout out to Matt, you're a legend. Yeah, that's, it's epic. Yeah. I mean, it's really cool. We're biased to it, but it's, it's awesome to have a horse in the race for sure. So he has got any more questions? No idea. I think we've got through some awesome questions from Henry. I got one from SA John T on Insta. That's not John T, my brother. Will Richard ever ride a non-e-bike again? Okay, so that's a bit of banter to one of our awesome employees at the bike shop and partner on another business. He's so quite Richard, fast, actually. Eh? He's I, very I, fast. I with him. He's like sitting on my wheel. Like, but it's a great, it's a great question, right? Because he's flip flopped. He's flip flopped from Sparks to Ransoms to Genius, and now he's on an e-Ransom. And I chirped. I said, "Hey, you're going to feature." He's like literally you could tell he knows the guy and this is a very fit rider and he gets a lot of stick for it but he's like i ain't going back he's a family man he's working a lot and it's kind of a general question that people shouldn't be scared of going to an e-bike because they might not go back well why do you ride hopefully to put a smile on your face you could still get as fit or fitter because you're going to ride more times a week so uh it's come up on the our podcast a lot, so uh, it's a pretty funny question. Okay, um, you got more more questions? No, there? go for it. Okay, no, I've so got some more, but you go for it. Okay, so something in from Southeast Asia from the Philippines, quite a long message. Um, this is from Duma Dumaguet City in Philippines. Um, so there's someone who runs a, a community there and some racing. And the question is about one particular guy who's 16 and up and coming and matching the elite times. And he, they're asking if he keeps progressing, he'll be, well, they're saying if he keeps progressing, he'll be knocking on the door of the elites in a few years. Since he is from a lower income family, we hope that someone listening or on the podcast can offer advice for him uh, his name is Miliochim Vinkoy Katalbas I hope I got that right he's the 2021 under 16 Philippine national downhill champion so it's a long it's a long message and they're basically asking for advice so I have replied to say that um, I will help them out as much as I can from here in South Africa with training advice and riding advice and so on so I will be chatting directly to them and asking them you know about their physical training and about what kind of issues this 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 particular guy is having during racing and what he's experiencing during racing to try and help him out. So it's kind of a broad uh, reach out looking for assistance from a low income racer who's apparently quite a pinner down in Philippines. So quite interesting. You've got listeners from yeah, the whole downhill goes, world. 
Yeah, it goes out to, I don't know, last time I checked it was 90 countries or maybe it's more, uh, which is amazing. Thanks so much for sending a question in to Miles and myself. Um, I think it's similar to the South African one. I said it is a broader question, right? Get as yeah. much as experience as you can in your country. The costs will be lower. I think if you are knocking on the doors, which you are clearly, um, keep that head down because if you start beating the elites, even in your country, some sort of sponsors will hopefully take notice. But reaching out to someone like Miles or us, and, and I'll definitely support that if anyone messages. Um, we had mentors and help getting to where we are, and we'd love to pay that forward. Um, so getting a coach, getting having a chat to someone after a race where they might spot a, a mental error in your strategy or something you can work on, you can get a lot of that sorted before you end up on the big stage. So... Yeah. Um, yeah, greetings. That's amazing. So from Indonesia, I'm there in July doing oh, really? something uh, rather big and personal. And I've been to Indo before. It's, it's cool that there is a scene there. Polygons from Indonesia, isn't it? Yes. Yes, so yeah. that's awesome. Well, we'll help you yeah. put a CV together if you get your racing. You keep up the results. We help you try and get sponsored. Who knows yeah. what, what can happen? Yeah, he's 15 years old. That's um, cool. So we'll try and help him out as much as we can. And who knows, maybe maybe one day we'll bump into him in Europe. Uh, exactly. And if he's listening, he's going to be really excited now because none other than Danny Hart, the Danny Hart, messaged us for a question for the podcast. We made it, Miles. No we made it. We're big time. The pros, so big. the pros are sneakily listening. No, Danny does listen. I know he listens to the race review ones and he texts me. So old teammate of mine, cheeky bastard, because he said... When you were racing with a proper contract, did you ever so, write this a mate? Is, this is a question from Danny, your mate. This is from Danny Hart, but he's throwing me under the bus. When you Classic. were racing with a proper contract, did you ever ride a mate's bike and think, shit, that's a good bike? No. Uh, short answer, yes. 100% I did. couple things. A lot of people would think you shouldn't ride, you know, like competitors' bikes. Because, you know, if you've got a two-year deal. But we all do it. It's happening. Okay? I'll just put it out there. I think it's silly not to know what's out there. But be careful when you do it. Because if you can't control your contract cycle and stuff, you're just going to get uh, a little bit, you know, mentally screwed by it. But I, at the time, was on a bike that was subpar. It didn't work. Like, mechanically, engineering, struck. it didn't work. Properly. I think I know which one. Yeah. And I didn't say anything at the time. It definitely affected my career. It's come up on the podcast before. I've said which bike it is or which brand. And they have a different bike, so it shouldn't affect anything. Yeah, this is 20 or 15, 20 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. This is, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Between 2006 <laughs> and 2008, you guys go figure it out. So, uh, yeah. I uh, I did. I rode at the time. I think I hopped on Maddie Laircoiner's uh, Intense. And at the time, Intenses were incredible. So you can imagine, imagine my shock when I got back on a bike that worked and then back on mine. And, uh, I mean, I even had Nicholas Voyeurs at one of the uh, reunion enduro races, those Mastard Mega Avalanche races. Uh, yeah. And uh, I'd met him a little bit and, and we talked a bit and I knew how smart he was. So they took one look at the bike, one look at me, 
another look at the bike. He said, your results, they're very up and down depending on the track. I said, yeah, that seems to be what's happening. He's like, well, you're basically standing on the swing arm. So what do you think's going to happen? <laughs> so, yeah. And, uh, yeah, good one, Danny. But, yeah, it has come up a little bit on the podcast. The old unified rear triangle. Um, exactly. That we had a few years ago, well, many years ago. Yeah. Um, were, were interesting when, when there was any square edge. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. Anyway, so what bikes did you ride when you were like pro gunner? I don't know what's that. Twelve, thirteen years there. What? Which bikes did you ride? Don't say what bikes you were sponsored by at the time or who you were riding oh. for at the time. But which bikes over the twelve, thirteen year span did you ride that were better and that were worse? Just mention the ones you rode that were better or worse. No, it was that was like the one that comes to mind. The it, intense. Tesla. I just I rode the intense, and it was just okay. a great bike back then. I mean, the intense was such a great bike. Every bike brand who didn't have a yeah at the time bike were putting their stickers on it and claiming it's their bike. Yeah. Yeah. So that was like a really good baseline for me to just check that I wasn't going absolutely mad. Um, and then. I definitely rode some bikes here and there, but I think I was, as I said, you shouldn't be riding the other bikes. But when we were testing, I always said, come on, why aren't we getting a few of the different bike brands? Put mm. our suspension on it. And we'd just be like, I like that part of that bike and that one. And because and, sometimes you pick apart your own bike and it's just the trail at the time or it's just, you know, it's it's not a negative on the bike. It's just how most of them are going to react. Um, but I think getting a few different bikes and i think there should be a silly season i think these contracts should end in end of october and then they pick up again in january pay them the same amount just call it an eight nine month contract whatever it is and then we have what ken roxon did in moto go ride other bikes go see what you like uh, but again if you can't control getting on a different bike then it's silly to do it you know Okay, but let's flip this question back to Danny. Let's ask him. Yeah. What Clearly bike has he recently yeah. ridden okay, yeah, why that has actually made him think about this and like bounce it towards you? Like, yeah, exactly. We'll get a voice note. I'll send him a voice and say, you better reply. <laughs> Nobody can't because he's under contract. Yeah. So he'll be I mean, trouble, he's, he's on the cube, right? That's yeah, he's bike. on the cube. It's a good no, bike. I mean... You kind of have to try to mess up a bike these days. You shouldn't. Have you seen that? Sorry, have you seen that spoof about Danny's Champery uh, run in the rain? Yes, yes. Who are With those war. guys? I want to. Who are those no, agents? I know. I saw you reshared it on the Takai one. That's so good. Um, so amazing. It's so good with the Warner and the Pagey just going absolutely mental at the screen. Yeah. Yeah, that is one of the best runs of all time for sure. You need to get those guys on your show. <laughs> they need to send us some info. Did the Oak, who did the Musa Flip at Darkfest, end up getting a sponsor? Right, so I need to translate this slang for you guys. Oak is an Afrikaans slang, South African language for guy. Musa Flip means massive. Um, at this stage... I've kept in touch here and there. I don't want to give over information that's not mine. I don't think 
He currently has one. I don't know what he's doing for this year. I know he's got a lot of interest, which is good, or some interest. I think the challenge is the cycle. The budgets are all finished a long time ago. 2024 ones will start getting looked at and wrapped up in September to October. So he could look good for 2024. Um, I just think it isn't great that he doesn't have a sponsor, but these things happen with cycles uh, and moving from one brand to the next. But also... He's only five years young in the sport, and now he's sort of becoming a name. He's becoming a Reynolds. He's becoming a Zinc of Freeride, right? He yeah. now holds not a Guinness Book World Record, but a World Record Dirt to Dirt Flip. I mean, everyone from the BBC is retweeting his stuff. So he's now made a name for himself, and I think that'll help him in the future. But it's really inspirational because, yeah, he had a bit of a chip on his shoulder at the Dark Fest, and you can see the motivation to go out there and prove himself. Uh, and I think it's going to pay off. Tom said, what a legend. Yeah, that's that the oak huge. we were talking about. The oak, yeah. Hit me with a question, Milo. My question is for you, Needles. Oh, shucks. <laughs> um, so talk about Darkfest and talk about um, your motivation to decide to hit the 90-footer and do a top-to-bottom you know, considering age, you know, and and what was it like? How difficult was it once you had done it? Just talk about your mindset going into it and were you going to Darkfest to do a top to bottom? Because last year you didn't do a top to bottom if I if I'm correct. So were you going to Darkfest in, with the intention of completing a top to bottom or is it something that just started rolling and the weather was playing its part and you just kind of went with it? How, how did that all come about? Because it's quite a gig. I mean, a 90 foot. Yeah, I guess now that I've, yeah, now that I've done it, it's you're just doing it with the guys and it's Darkfest. But I think from the outside, it still is a crazy event. It's, you know, the biggest jumps on, on you know, kind of the biggest course top to bottom. I know Vink's got some really long ones as well. But no, I didn't think I was probably going to do it this year. There weren't sort of plans to do it because I said to myself the last few years, I'm kind of like the redheaded stepchild of that event. I go there, I do some media for Kender and, and, and some sponsors, and it's, it's really close, and it gets me a little bit out of my comfort zone. And I've always loved jumping from dirt jumping. I've always, always been comfortable on it. And, you know, and then Brendan would drag me into the bottom jumps and I would be comfortable in them. And then everyone would say, what are you doing? Those bottom jumps are harder, more intimidating than the 90. The 90 is easy, and you know, for lack of a better term. And actually, it is. But the repercussions or the downside of crashing on the 90 foot, you're going faster, you're probably going to get more hurt, touch wood. So for me, it wasn't worth the risk. I don't think my contract, Eistead's contract's going up or he's going to get one. I don't think, I'm not getting a bigger contract from Scott if I do the 90. Uh, or maybe, who knows, I'll have to send him my free ride invoice. But, you know, I'm, I'm on the brand for different reasons and I'm aware of that, right? So I didn't want to get ahead of myself. So I don't want to go to hospital, touch wood. And, and I think, you know, the consequences of the 90 in my mind the way I looked at it was seemed worse than those rocket launches at the end, even though their lips are bigger, uh, they're gnarlier, they're actually harder, they're more technical to get right. The 90s, now that they've built it so well, 
um, if you jump the road gap before and you don't use your brakes and you don't do something really silly, touch wood, you, you should get over it pretty well because yeah. they built it so well. So the previous year, I just mentally said, I'm not going to do it so that I don't make a decision on emotion. Now, these free riders are different. When the hype is up, the adrenaline is up, this is what they get paid to do. This is what they live for. Um, they make decisions on emotion. Someone like Ike made an emotional decision to flip one of the last jumps, broke his femur. Um, was it the smartest thing to do before a World Cup season? Probably not on paper, right? So I was aware of that. So it's a long-winded answer. And then this year, everyone was doing it. And they look good on it. They touch wood. I'm saying that a lot because, you know, uh, there was a crash on it. And, and she, got, she got banged up. But everyone else looked smooth. It looked good. The wind conditions were perfect. And I'm looking around. And I ended up opening one of the road gaps because I felt comfortable on it. And at that point, yeah, the adrenaline comes over you. you I've made sort of a calculated decision that my riding on the rest of the course is on par with 90% of these guys. So, you know, the, the rush took over. But then when, when I stepped into the 90, just the way I look at it, you know, you have to make peace with the consequences. And I'm like, well, everyone's got over it. There's mostly a good chance it works. If I back out too late, I'm definitely going to crash in the middle. So I need to just make peace with, okay, once I commit, off we go. And I'll tell you the biggest rush ever. I was screaming like mad. So that gives you uh, uh, a viewpoint into my crazy head. It's, it, it, was, it was a challenge for me because I sort of mentally said, I don't need to do it. It's not worth it. So... For the listeners, that's amazing insight into a highly calculated and analytical athlete. Yes, he does extreme sports, but a highly calculated analytical athlete. And uh, that's why you were such a good downhill racer as well. You calculated everything. So uh, it, I guess you answered my question. Like that's exactly what I wanted to hear. Um, but now, my second question is, you were there with, with all the riders. Now, not everyone who is at Darkfest has a racing background, has a downhill racing calculated background. So did you, did you get much time to spend with them? And did you see amongst the full group that some were definitely just not planning and calculating things and just running like buck wild? Or would you say everyone is calculated to a degree like like how because i mean if you just follow on instagram you see a whole lot of crazy haircuts you know um like good times everyone pumping and it's like such a, such a, an amazing atmosphere but how much behind the scenes do people who weren't there not know about like how much of the how much of that wild party behavior actually just translates onto the line or is everything calculated no, I think it depends on the rider. Someone like Adolf is wild. He's as wild as you see. You know, he's off his bike more than he's on it with some of those body variables and stuff. Okay. I think, you know, these guys like Sam Reynolds, Sea uh, Dog, even a Vinny T, you know, they've been doing this so long. There's quite an instinctual gut feeling of speed 
Um, and that's what happened with the 90. Like I could, as a racer, there was a step down. It's not about me, but so someone has to test these jumps. I don't want to test the big ones. It's too much consequence. But we were all rolling into it. And it, it wasn't like trying to show off and be before Sea Dog or Sam. It was, a, I, I looked and I was like, it's a step down. It looks kind of like a road gap on a downhill course, which you would have to do. Um, the speed feels pretty good. I'm like, I can't see that I'm going to case this. I just like naturally, I can feel I'm not going to case this jump. So then if I, if I get to about that landing, I'm going to ride it out. Cool. And I went up and I did it because I wanted to do it for myself. Like there's a feeling in your stomach of nervousness and like, you need to commit and you need to let your subconscious take over. If you built up the skill set, you can't think, you can't, you know, you've got to just get it done. Um, and I think similar happens even on the big jumps. These guys were rolling in, test the speed, and they're like, they were almost annoyed. They're like, this is going to work. You could, when they did the, the step down before the 110, obviously that's the big feature this year. You could see they were like, dude, we have the speed. Shit, it's on. Someone has to do it first. Someone has to get it right, hopefully. But they've, yeah, I don't know if I'm answering your question, but there is still a lot of like calculation, but it's sort of instinctual, subconscious. I um, think you're, you're servicing the, the same, listeners in a big yeah, way. Yeah, there's, these yeah. are massive insights. Yeah, and like the some of the jumps you don't do for a year. I promise you the first time you go into the step up, you're standing there with Sam Reynolds and C-Dog, and they're going, who's guinea pig? I'm like, well, you did this last year. I roll in and I get to the bottom. I'm going so fast. My brain doesn't want to allow me to hit the lip. So I pull off. I'm like, huh? But then you actually have to have a conversation. But it was full speed last year. The jump hasn't been changed. There's no other option here. If we go full speed again, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. So I guess it's like anything in life. If you do it enough, you get such a good instinctual gut feeling. And, and that does play a huge role. Sometimes you have to park the gut feeling or park the negative thoughts because you've got enough information that probability is you're going you're gonna to make it. Um, I don't think half of them think like as much as me. I, I do okay. have a more analytical brain. Um, some guys do, some guys don't. Tom Eisted, yeah, uh, he knows he can do it. He, he backs himself. He did 107 foot. They kind of just felt like it was the time to do it. And then he went up when he felt there was a tailwind. Does he know he's going to go 120 foot? No. He is just backing himself that he can instinctually feel a flip at that speed. I think these are incredible insights for me. Like the main takeaway that, that from where I am as a skills coach and, and, uh, something I drum into everyone I work with is that you've got to have some sort of technique baseline for every obstacle that you see on a trail. And you can't ever hit something just thinking, I'm not sure what I'm doing, but I'm just going to hope for the best. And so you've like done a deep dive into reinforcing that the sport is all technique based and you have to calculate, you have to you can tackle bigger and bigger obstacles, but you have to build up to it and you have to have a technique for a step down, for a road gap, for a big gap jump, for a step yes. up. You have to know what you're doing. You can't just, well, there are those riders who don't know what they're doing and they just send it and they get away with it sometimes, but then things will go wrong. It's it's all boils down to technique and you've got to have some kind of technique, right? 
Yeah, and a baseline, and it's crazy. It splits. I'm just thinking while we're talking. The ninety, it's a, it's a, it's an instinctual decision on the lip. I don't have enough speed, so there's more pop. I've got speed, then you sort of absorb it a little bit more. But back to you, I think we've spoken a lot about. But eventually, I made a decision. Once I do the road gap before, I'm not touching. If that goes well and I land smooth, I'm not touching my brakes. So that's commitment. A committed jump with a little less technique is better than a guy with decent technique and, and no commitment. And maybe that goes to what you were trying to get at. You coach a lot of people. People are listening. Maybe people are weekend warriors. That's not a negative. You've got a full-time job. Focus on something else. You want to improve your jumping. Start small. Figure out the technique. Build the confidence. If you get to something and you feel you've got the technique and you want to do it, if you are second-guessing yourself and you're doing one or two run-ins and the third one, you still can't commit. Maybe that's not the day to do it because we'd rather have you a little less good on a bike but full commitment because it's those lack of commitments, half-ass attempts that get people in trouble as well. And then obviously overconfident, not enough technique. Those are big crashes as well. Mm, 100%. Um, if I can just add while we're on Darkfest, um, first of all, th what a great answer, great, great, great answer to that question. But Needles, um, what an incredible event that Ryan Franklin, Monster Energy, uh, Sam, everyone put on. And for viewers who haven't or for listeners who weren't able to get to Darkfest, um, just my five cents on it. As someone who's ridden bikes my whole life and seen big stuff. Uh, and also massive motocross fan and stood around motocross tracks from a, as a youngster. Um, Darkfest is, and that size scale, that scale of jumps is something you really want to witness. You really want to see in, in you want to see it live. Like Instagram is amazing. YouTube's amazing. And the clips are amazing. But when you're there and you actually stand and you see how high these guys are going and the steez of Cade Edwards, Vinny T, like everyone. I don't know all the riders that were there, but what, all I can say is next year I'm going to spend a lot more time at Darkfest making a whole lot more media and trying to dig out more of the, the insights because it's huge. I mean, I've ridden some big tracks and done some stuff in my time, but when you stand and you look at these things, I mean, uh, 110 foot and he's flipping it like... It's, he's like eight meters or more in the air. To witness no, it is something special. It's so disgusting. It's disgusting, it's honestly right? disgusting. That so 110 foot jump is absolutely disgusting. Miles asked me about my experience and I have this small little experience. It took me a few years to just get out of my own head because whatever. These riders have been doing this for years, tweaking yeah. these jumps. And then they decide they're going to build 110 foot. Someone has to jump that first. That's the worst thing. That is like a hundred times harder than jumping at second. Because if you yeah. jump, you 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 you're there for a reason. You're one of the top riders in the world. So then your skill set should be so you hope close to the guy that tested it. Okay, well it worked. You kind of gauge his speed. The guy that goes first, dude, it, it can be a lottery on a new jump of that size because you can't just case it, get away with it. <laughs> You know? That that commit is a mental thing that happens in the start, like yeah, and you and you like you've you've the decision is done. It's almost a death grip, so you can't bail out. Like 
Yeah, I think on those sort of magnitudes, because yeah, like bailing a little bit late or brake tapping at the wrong time, you can land in the middle of the jump. I mean, that's that's a hospital yeah. ride, guaranteed. Yeah. But I, I think it's super cool. I think it's rare to see the riders come together. Obviously, they got support of Kenda, Monster, all the sponsors. Like that's really cool. But the vibe is there, and and what you get out of it is this successful edit that's in the millions of views now. A lot of guys had some viral clips. The camaraderie of helping everyone, uh, not they help each other, you know, land tricks. Or if a guy's struggling with his cork seven, you know, Nikolai will be on the side and be like, well, you didn't pull hard enough off the lip or you you look too soon. It's it's really awesome to see the riders uh, come together. And I think, you know, a lot of riders maybe come from slope style. That's a very competitive, pressure-filled environment. There's a few races. It's a lot of pressure. And this is a little bit laxed, but you're still getting, you know, world-class stunts. Yeah, I think wherever you are, uh, you've got. If one of these events comes comes to your country or to your town, make sure you get there. So, yeah, incredible, yeah, definitely. incredible place. <laughs> That's awesome. One of the filmers, Thomas Sandel, I do a lot of work with him. Gnarliest, scariest thing you guys have ever seen. Best memory. Well, yeah. Well, lately with my old memory, yeah, it's the ninety footer. I mean that jazz. That stoked on something for a while, you know, getting out of my comfort zone. So, yeah, that was a silly stunt that Touchwood went well. And and I got to ride the whole course and feel part of the event that I've been a little bit enjoying from the sideline riding a bit. So that's that's my answer. Uh, Miles? Well done, dude. Well done. Crazy. You're, you're a madman. Absolute madman. Well done. No, that question's for both of us. Well... Um, I don't. I, my wife's just arrived home. Sorry, I was a bit distracted because she's arriving home, and it's, it's bedlam here. Repeat the question. What's the wildest, gnarliest, scariest thing you've done? That I've done. Yeah, it's, it's you guys. Thomas wrote to both of us. He knows we both. Oh, are sure. sorry. My wife is just arriving home. Um, I think the wildest thing I've done. Okay, so Taxco Red Bull downhill in Taxco in two thousand and three. I think it was the first or the second year that there was a Red Bull street race there. And the wildest thing I've done is just full commit. There was this alleyway with a little kink in it, high speed. Yes, the bars were narrower way back then, but high speed, cobbled surface, a little bit of shade and a little bit of moisture. And I, I knew if I no break that, the, the, the speed would just like compound itself. And uh, I no braked it in the in the race run, and I won that event. I won the Taxco Red Bull Downtown 2003. That's and, amazing. Uh, and it, it, I still, I mean, it's 20 years ago. <laughs> and I mean, I've done some big jumps, cascades, and that kind of stuff. But um, that one moment sticks out for me because that was just full pinned, wild, full commit, and the consequences were dire like it would have been disastrous hitting a wall at that speed and you had done it in practice or not no i sort of like felt it out in practice and i was like i think it can be done i think it can be done and remember this was like tires back in those days weren't that great i think i had that michelin 2.8 that big meat thing on the front on a street think I, that's horrendous it was just a you, you got like a quantity of rubber that you couldn't get anywhere else um and then I think I like I had a 
the high rollers we just launched back, I think I had a high roller on the back. It was, I can't remember what was on the back, but I was like, I got this big contact patch. I should be okay. And I just committed to the cobbles. Yeah, that's, that is scary. Those street races have come a long way. They try to be as safe as they can, but the consequences are higher because you can't sort of run off the track into the tape or the bushes. Yeah. Um, Jason, half the time, I mean, the one I went to, there was a little kicker before a pavement that wasn't even bolted to the ground. I was like, I hope this is here when I get here the next run. It's sort of before a step down. So, yeah, I've got, yeah, maybe I can share it. I can share my crash. I did a street race and clipped a handlebar and went sliding on a concrete road that was so steep that to put horizontal grooves in the road for the cars to have traction. So this idiot, yeah, street races. So I respect that, Miles. That is probably scarier than doing 90 foot, for sure. <laughs> no ways. <laughs> um, I'm done on questions. Well, That's me. Yeah, well, let's wrap it up. Where can I watch for re? Um, sorry, dude, I'm old school. Audio only, podcast, Apple, Spotify, any audio platform that has podcasts, I'm on there. Search Move the Needles and your podcast. Um, if you're any good at clipping or editing, you can become my YouTube guy. Um, I'm open to it. <laughs> I'm going to get some random in some other country uh, wanting to do my YouTube. But anyway, uh, will SA ever host another World Cup? Uh, I hope so. Challenges budget. Um, I'm not sure if the new organization have an issue with shuttling to the top. I haven't spoken to him, haven't seen the rule book. I think if the old rules were if you can get enough people to the top in a set hour, you, you could do shuttles. Uh, Maritzburg, not the best downhill if you're talking, you know, against some gnarly tracks. But the crowds, the vibe with Greg there, it was a great race, right? Yeah. You know, there's nothing wrong with having it there. The XE World Cup in Stellenbosch was incredible. I wish that one would come back. That could work again. Spectators were great. Um, it's a challenge. The cost to put on races, I don't think everyone knows the, the red tape, the cost. You basically need tourism to get involved and, and help you with the expenses. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's very costly. And you'd need, you'd need someone outside of the bike industry that would uh, finance it and roll it because um, it's and I suppose it's also a long way to travel for the whole uh, circus, you know, the whole the whole team, the whole the whole yeah. World Cup squad. Yeah, it is a challenge. I'm not sure what they're going to do about that in the future. If certain venues in New Zealand or Australia put up their hand, the Enduro goes there. That like if you if you clump it and you can sort of offset the costs and go down there for two or three. But it does. What? You're right. It adds cost to the the professional teams for sure. One thing's for sure, uh, if Africa is going to get a World Cup, it would definitely be South Africa. Um, we have the mountains for it. We have the community and we have the organ local organizers, experience, trail builders, uh, and so on. So uh, it would be cool and if Africa did have a World Cup. Um, but yeah, costs are huge. Definitely. Then Joshi MTB, did you enjoy South Africa? Uh, I'm not sure who he's referring to. I definitely enjoy South Africa. My, all we do is chat positive things about South Africa, but we appreciate the question. That's for sure. Um, I think that's, I think we can start wrapping it up. We are, I think this is going to go live on 
on Tuesday, or you guys are listening to it, but we're about two or three weeks from the World Cup, so Miles and I are going to get hugely excited. It kicks off in Lenzerheide. We're going to have a, some Crank Brothers race review, a preview show, probably get Sven on for that, and Alan, because they've been at some of these events. We'll get Miles back for some of those reviews. But um, there's some rule changes, which I'm not going to even chat about, because they'll be coming out in the preview show. So that's exciting. Uh, there's certain protection rules and certain points have been changed for the semifinals. So there's a little bit more uh, drama and information kicking up before the first World Cup. So that's really cool because, as we said, we had a very positive outlook on the season and the, and, uh, the new organization. And you can see they're, they're wanting the best for the sport. If they're adapting rules, because I heard you can't do a rules but once a year at a big UCI meeting, but Clearly, that information, they can maybe change that. So that's awesome. Yeah, it looks like they're tweaking on the fly, which is great. Yeah, definitely. Any parting words, tips, funny stories? Funny stories. Uh, hey, I'm in Morzine uh, from eight, what, 20 June for a month. If uh, any listeners are going to be there, like DM me. Let's go ride. Let's, let's, let's yeah. go ride. I'm there for Miles. four weeks. Yeah, you can, do, you can do the first Moving the Needle World of MTB ride day. I won't be there. I'm in Europe as well. If anyone listens, I'll be in Leogang and Val de Fassa. So uh, hit me up. Uh, it's so cool getting the messages. Uh, we really appreciate it. We want to maybe build the community a bit more. I think these listener questions do that. So, yeah, you can shoot these questions over once you listen to this. I'll try to archive them um, until the next one. I think the biggest thing you can do for us, just share it with a friend. And uh, follow the show because you're going to miss an episode. 100% agree. Thanks for having me on, Needles. Till the next one. Guys, wicked. Stay well. During my racing years and even now, I take my health and nutrition pretty seriously. It was so difficult though to stick to some sort of routine and remember to take all those necessary supplements. Then I found Athletic Greens. I'm so excited to partner with them personally and for this podcast. I actually started taking AG1 long before this partnership even came about. So what is this stuff? Think of AG1 as your all-in-one health insurance. I know I do. I've never been one for taking a million different supplements or vitamins. So this is just the perfect all-in-one solution for me. I actually look forward to taking it. I do it first thing in the morning. I feel more alert and focused and now I'm taking care of my body and health. I feel energized to get my day going. So check this out. With one scoop of AG1, you're absorbing 75 high quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, probiotics, and adaptogens to help start your day right. This special blend of ingredients supports your gut health, nervous system, immune system, energy, recovery, and helps enhance your focus. It contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, None of that nasty chemicals or artificial anything, all while still tasting good. Let's be honest, we all know we don't eat enough vegetables or consume the healthiest meals some of the time, especially when we get busy. We all want something quick and easy which will help us in life. AG1 supports better sleep quality recovery, mental clarity and alertness. Now I don't care what you do, I think we all can agree this is super important. AG1 is trusted by so many professional athletes and health experts. To make trying it easy, Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting and vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle. 
Again, that is athleticgreens.com forward slash moving the needle to take ownership of your health and pick up the ultimate daily nutritional insurance. The links will be in the show notes as well. Thanks to our episode sponsor, ODI. Now I've been on these and only these grips for well over 20 years. How cool is that? I clearly remember we couldn't even get them in South Africa back in the day when I was a junior. The minute I got my hands on a pair of these lock-on grips, I never looked back. They are the original lock-on. They have an incredible range of options out there. But I want to tell you a little bit about something new they're offering. Drawing on over 40 years of experience of producing performance-driven grips and feedback from their extensive network of top riders across the globe, the Reflex Grip have been engineered to reduce impacts and vibration being passed onto the rider's hands to allow you to ride more with less pain and fatigue. Reflex Grips are the latest innovation in impact dampening to keep you riding longer and farther as they've been specifically engineered to reduce vibration like having suspension-free hands without compromising control. They use their propriety grip compound with its superior impact damping properties and couple this with responsive ribbed padding that actively flexes under your hands to reduce impacts and torsional forces. Now those are some fancy words, but let me tell you, this just really is going to help you with less fatigue, less pain. You're going to be able to ride longer. So what's not to like about that? Not to mention their version 2.1 lock-on grip system gives you the most reliable, slip-free grip performance available. Hey, if you want to learn more, head over to odigrips.com or pop into your nearest retailer.